0: Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Glenn McDormand.
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of Wolfe's first novel, Operation Ares, which was published in 1970. We're doing chapters five and six
0: today. And last time we left off with John Castle slinking back among the ranks of the prisoners following the battle in the woods between the Martian and the forces of the pro tem government. And I think with that in mind, uh, we can just jump straight into it.
1: Chapter five is titled, Where the Lion Sleeps. It finds John Castle safe in New York in a towering glass office building. He's tired from his long journey, but before he's allowed to go to bed, he has to meet with his new boss in the pressed program. His boss is a well-fed, well-dressed man in tweeds. He also claims to be a prisoner who has served 17 of a 20-year sentence. Pressmen, it seems, do very well for themselves. So well, in fact, that if they have an opportunity to become free based on good behavior during their sentence, they often refuse.
0: This is a really interesting detail here. This arrangement here where prisoners are doing the work of the state, they're carrying out the business of administering the state, Uh, And are living quite well as a result of it is actually very similar to the way that Roman government and Roman elite society functioned during the late Republic uh, and the early Empire. We have in this situation, teachers of the elite and also the administrators of the government are largely slaves uh, often Greek slaves and they live better than most free Roman citizens as a result of their attachment to elite households and uh, I have to think that wolf uh,
1: has that in mind here I think you're right explicitly later on we see a reference to the Roman Republic in in the description of a net which is pretty interesting but we're gonna find out why the pressmen live so well very shortly and it's pretty despicable yeah let's get on with it The boss's name is Frank Colby, and he asks John what his degree is in, and John replies that it's in general science. This is a bit of a problem because, quote, the man on the street has been conditioned to be suspicious of science. John asks if he is going to be working with this man on the street or if he'll continue to work with prisoners. Colby tells John that you don't get to work with prisoners who I assume here are like the easy customers to work with until you've had eight years of service under your belt or imprisonment, I suppose.
0: I got real interested in this character of Frank Colby because the name Frank Colby is also the name of a historical figure from around the turn of the 20th century. He was a professional historian. He worked at Barnard and he worked at NYU. He was also something of a public intellectual and so he wrote a lot of essays and he was a conservative political commentator in these essays and in newspaper columns and such. He has a a collection of essays called Imaginary Obligations, and I read through a little bit of that this week in preparation for this episode. And I have to think that Wolfe has him in mind here, that Wolfe has actually read him, because he has a real cynical view of institutions and especially of government and the people who want to go into government as well. So I think this is not an unintentional reference.
1: It sounds like it was done on purpose, especially given what Frank Colby ends up representing here. And I I think Wolf is probably trying to point us to this person. So after getting cleaned up and changing into a suit um, and sleeping, presumably, John attends the pressed orientation with other college-educated prisoners. Uh, John is identified as being a master of educational skills rather than having a degree in general science because Colby, I think, thinks it'll have... John, fit in better with everyone. Yeah, but Wolf makes a real fun joke here too,
0: where he has sort of a crack about engineers. When Colby is discovering that John Castle is a scientist, he says, an engineer or something like that's bad enough, but a scientist. Uh, I think this is, this is Wolf making fun of his own profession a little bit, which is fun.
1: Yeah, I think so. We find out that Press Quarters is in what used to be the UN building And the UN building has moved to peaceful Cairo after the US has become too unsafe uh, for these people to reside in. This is a super
0: interesting line here. One, we learned that the United Nations still exists and, and even seems to still be functioning. But more importantly, Wolf has chosen a part of the world that was absolutely not peaceful during the novel's composition. Uh, This is the period of Nasser's rule in Egypt, and during the late 60s, as a result of the Six-Day War with Israel, Egypt became something of a police state. And moreover, Egypt at this time was within the Soviet sphere of influence, Uh, and there were Soviet civilian and military advisors in Egypt, and many people in the West saw Nasser as a Soviet puppet. So Wolf may also be indicating here that the UN has moved into the Soviet orbit and perhaps become a tool of the Soviet Union, which I think is a real fear that conservatives have about the UN.
1: That's right. That's a a great way to read this inclusion of uh, Cairo in this section. But I also think that Wolf is highlighting Uh, In many cases, in many instances in this story, that the U.S. is becoming everything that they are fighting against in the world. The U.S. has become this in this story. And all of this is to highlight that the U.S. has become what it fears in the world. I don't know exactly what Wolf is doing with that in this story, other than it's a fun kind of science fiction storytelling device, but it's definitely a major part of this novel.
0: Right. I think by, by saying that Cairo is more peaceful than New York, that is exactly what he's saying, is that the dystopia that he's describing here is worse than than what most Americans think of as an actual present dystopia
1: in Egypt in the 1960s. While John is in his orientation, he learns a little bit about the pressed men's duties. And they include primarily investigating claims for benefits and enrolling citizens into the welfare benefits program. The government is very concerned about keeping the economically deprived happy, and the pressmen's job is to keep them happy. And as a result, the pressmen are rewarded in privileges and autonomy. But they're also paid in more than just privileges and autonomy. Pressed, it turns out, is set up like a multi level marketing scheme where the pressmen are monetarily rewarded based on the number of clients they can sign up and also the number of pressmen that end up working under them. And once a pressman, we learn, has enough capital, he can begin a money loaning business as long as he doesn't charge more than 10% interest to his. Clients, these people on welfare. So this is a really despicable system. Yeah, you're very
0: polite calling it multi-level marketing, which is the thing that people who do it call it in order to give it legitimacy. <laughs> but it's a pyramid scheme. That's 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 what Wolf is describing here is a, a fraud. Uh, it is all smoke and mirrors. It is a, by which the pressed men are parasites.
1: Right, and we see in this chapter we're going to see the outcome of this, the the logical end of this system. After three days of orientation, John is fitted with a fistfink. A fistfink is basically like an ankle monitor, but it goes on the wrist, and there's some you know fun radio science fiction mumbo-jumbo associated with it. Uh, I'm not going to go too deep into it, because it becomes inessential to the plot, other than it makes John feel like he cannot escape from the pressed core. It's an
0: interesting detail, though, too, because this is a society that can't build cars anymore but yet they have this highly technological handcuffs that have like sorts of weird sensors and radio communication. So something fishy is going on here. Absolutely.
1: You know, first the pressman is required to check out a fistfink every time he leaves the building and check it back in every time he comes home. And if he's knocked out, as you said, or goes unconscious, which is like these weird monitoring things, the Peace Guard is alerted, and they roll out to get the prisoner. And what, I think all that Wolf is communicating here is that John has no way to escape. I think that's the point of this. Yeah, it's a setup. It's an
0: obstacle for John Castle to have to overcome.
1: Well, John finally gets to head out, and he leaves the building after checking out his fistfink and heads to one of the addresses on his list. He decides to walk because the address is only a mile away. As he's walking, he continues to think about his escape. He feels his situation is so hopeless that his best case scenario may just be that the Martians return and restore the constitutional government and then he'll be able to win a pardon. His thoughts then drift to Anna Trees and how safe will she be in these intervening years? It it, 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 it concerns him. But then he recognizes himself, and he knows that this momentary fantasy of waiting for the Martians to return, this escape that he's engaging in, um, while he plays the part of the model prisoner, it's not something that's within his character to be able to do. He must find a means of permanent escape, unlike what happened to the prisoners who ran during the last Martian attack on their way to New York, who were rounded up shortly after they broke away. We're told here that New York City
0: is a terrible place, that walking around during the daytime is the safest thing to do, meaning don't go into the subway and don't walk around at night. And I think that Wolf is drawing on some features of New York City in the mid and late 1960s. This is the period when the famous New York City blackout happened and was really transformative in the character of the city uh, as industrial jobs disappeared and white families moved to the suburbs in pursuit of new economic activities and, and economic opportunities. And I think there's something else going on here too, which is that 1965 is also when Wolf's ideological confrere, William F. Buckley, whom we've talked about a lot during our reading of Operation Ares, actually ran for mayor of New York City and lost. And so it's hard not to see Wolf's description of New York City here in the novel as a sort of dystopian vision of what is going to happen to the city because Buckley hadn't won that election.
1: That's a fantastic bit of information. And I think that's absolutely what Wolf is doing here. And it's just a shame that Wolf felt he needed to get John Castle all the way to New York City to make these claims. And it's, uh, I th- yeah, it's just something that's curious to me is why John Castle has to get to New York, at least in terms of the narrative. We haven't uncovered it yet, instead of, and, and why he had to leave White City. These are questions I'm really looking forward to the answers to.
0: Yeah, and I think some of these are, are topics that we'll we'll talk about when we do our wrap up episode with Mark Aramini. But I think at this point, really, the plot is in some ways serving as an opportunity for Wolf to show off all the locations of this speculative fiction world that he has he has he has built. John is moving around as a point of view character so that we, the readers, can see what this dystopia is all about. And so that Wolf can tell us how we as American citizens in uh, the late 1960s ought to be voting.
1: That's my view on it as well. (laughs) Well, the point of view of the story shifts to Anna Trees. Uh, We learn that she is part of a militia detail comprised of six Caucasians, two Negroes, an Oriental from Hawaii, and one American Indian. Half of the detail are men, the other half are women. And I get the sense from this section that the militia is meant to be representative of the population of the United States at this time. Yeah, or at least this bodyguard detail
0: is. Wolf uh, here describes this as absurd, Uh, this notion of a multiracial, multigendered military unit. Not quite sure what it is that he's finding absurd about it, but it was
1: interesting to note. Right. Well, earlier he did bring up that it's you know it's the Russians whose idea it was to bring women into the military. So there's something going on there, at least with gender. Um, But I think at least this section is meant to demonstrate to us that this is just a kind of a show. It's a dog and pony show. It's not a real bodyguard. But I'm I'm put off by it (laughs) for sure. Yeah, I think we can move on from it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anna feels that this just can't be representative of the population of the United States. That's her thoughts on it. Her and her detail are under inspection uh, before they get into the car of a government official. And the official, we learn, is an old man who's important enough to get this detail, but not important enough to really be protected from any genuine threat. It's the president pro tem who assigns this detail. In this section, we also learn that the Martians are being supported by China, who thinks that the American government is illegitimate, illegal, and run by Soviet crypto revisionists. Anna and Sarah Yoshido, the Hawaiian, look forward to the moment after they get into this car where they can get enough privacy to radio their boss's location to the Martians with their communicator. Both of them are in Aries. Brandon,
0: I'd like to know if you'd be interested in playing bass in my new hardcore punk band called Soviet Crypto Revisionists. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to play bass. (laughs) On a serious note, I do want to point out that Sarah and Anna, who are these agents of the Martians, as you say, these are both Hebrew names. We talked a little bit in our first Operation Ares episode about how Anna means grace. And I think that that's going to eventually have some narrative significance. Sarah, in Hebrew, means just something like important lady. Uh, We might translate it as princess or queen or something uh, by our modern standards. But of course, Sarah famously is the wife of Abraham, who is the father of nations in the book of Genesis. It's not clear that that's going to have any meaning yet, but I do think that Wolf is doing something with Hebrew names, or perhaps we might even say biblical names, in this story. So I want to point it out here.
1: So far, that seems to be the case, though I'm not sure what end they're going to serve yet. And it's another thing I'm really looking forward to finding out as we continue our reading of Operation Ares. The action of the novel cuts back to John Castle. He's in a rundown tenement apartment with a man who's in a bad situation. The man is holding a greasy knife and is both a threat to himself and to John. John, we learn, had taken the man and his wife, the man's wife, on as clients The man had had a job selling flowers. They're just having this kind of conversation going back and forth. And then a stranger interrupts John's attempts to talk his client out of self-harm. The interruption is enough to distract John. And when John is distracted, the client tries to stab himself with this knife in the chest. John reacts quickly and tries to wrestle the knife away. And then he does. And the stranger and John talk about this client who's in a drug haze. The client is laying in his bed, and he just says out of the blue, the sand blows across the trail the lion walks. Only the lion knows where the lion sleeps. And here's our chapter title, and I don't know, maybe a lion's going to come to play later. Could be, yeah. (laughs) The stranger tells John that he should put a blanket on the client because the apartment has no heat. Doesn't John care if the client gets pneumonia? And John has to admit that he really doesn't care if the client gets pneumonia. He asks the stranger what the client meant by all this lion stuff. So the stranger tells John that John's client is a hunter. And the hunters are something like a religious organization, though they would call themselves prophetic students. And they don't like people in their fold taking drugs. We get a really
0: interesting detail here about this distinction between religious organization and prophetic study group, basically. And the distinction is this, that if they say they're a study group, they don't have to pay taxes on the tithes that are given to the organization. But if they're a church, if they're a religion, then they would. This, of course, is very different from the united states as it exists now and also as it existed in the 1960s in which churches are exempt from this type of taxation income that churches receive money churches receive in the form of tithes of of charitable contributions are not taxed they're not taxed as income they're not taxed as profit but here in this dystopia they are being taxed and this has to be a moral message a political message here that wolf is trying to make that of course if if America becomes a communist country, if America even becomes a socialist country, possibly even if America becomes a progressive country, the respect for religion will disappear and churches will be taxed such that churches will, will have to cease to exist and there will be no one preaching the word of God uh, in America anymore. And that would be a bad thing.
1: Right. And we mentioned perhaps uh, in our last recap about how up until this point, we hadn't heard anything about any religious organization or church, though there seems to be some memory of at least this notion of the clergy. John's client's wife comes home. Uh, we learn that her name is Mona, and the client's name is Charlie. The stranger's name was Paul, and he leaves. Mona thanks John for staying with Charlie. She administers a treatment for the drug that Charlie has taken and And Charlie slowly begins to come out of this haze he's under. She also mentions the sound of these laughing drug addicts in the streets at night, which I think is a callback perhaps to the original concept of the story that spawned this novel and also just, I don't know, fun imagery. No, I think it's definitely a
0: callback, right? The line, uh, she's yeah she's lamenting that at night in New York City, the junkies rule the streets. And she says, you ought to stay here some night and listen to them laughing. And as you say, this has to be a direct callback to the beasts that we meet in the first chapter back in White City. And I think that this callback, this parallel here is meant to, to point to us or to to emphasize for us that doing drugs dehumanizes you to the point that you may as well just be an animal.
1: I think so. There's a lot of strong talk against drugs in in this chapter of the novel. Yeah, this is the
0: most after-school special chapter of the novel so far.
1: I think that's a great way to characterize it. This is an hour and a half, 4 p.m. movie on ABC in 1987. Um, Well, Charlie eventually breaks out of his stupor completely, and Mona makes Charlie some soup. Charlie asks John if he's going to put him back on welfare because he lost his job already. John says sure, and he asks Charlie how he's lost his job so quickly. And Charlie says that he got fired because an anonymous tipper told his boss that he took drugs. Then Charlie asks John if he's an Aries man. Mona chimes in that everybody knows John is one anyway, but John is continually insistent here, even at this point, that he's not a member of Ares. The conversation continues on this topic and opens up more broadly about their current situation. Mona asks John what he thinks will happen to people like her if the Martians take over. John says that the Martians aren't thinking about people like her and Charlie, and he thinks that most likely what will happen is the Martians will have developed means of dealing with at least Charlie's personality problem that's exhibited in his chem habit, which is chem is the drug term. John's answer to Charlie about this personality problem sounds exactly like the way the Russians already deal with these sorts of issues. And Charlie refers to the Russians as roboticizing their soldiers. And John replies that roboticizing people with personality problems is at least what the Chinese say that the Russians do. But Charlie has seen Russian soldiers with this blank affect, and he believes in the truth of it. Yeah, I'm not even sure that he is talking about...
0: Humans who have been kind of lobotomized such that they have a blank expression on their face. I think he's actually talking about real robots who are becoming soldiers here. Uh, And I hope that turns out to be an actual feature of the story, though. I'm sure that it will not.
1: Yeah, that was not my reading at all. I really read it as like they just do something to remove all personality problems. Like the cure for a personality problem is the wiping of the personality, though it may just be that they are building robot soldiers. I took this to be a reference more to
0: just getting rid of people altogether because people are a problem and we should just have machines doing this
1: type of work. That's fantastic. And I do hope we see that trope in this story. Well, yeah. Now that I know
0: we have very different readings of this line, <laughs> I hope we find out. Um, and of course, I would en- I would encourage listeners to write in and uh, let us know how they read that
1: line. Yeah. If you've been reading along, definitely let us know. But if you've read ahead and you know the answer, don't tell us. <laughs> yeah. No, no spoilers for this 50-year-old, not very well-received <laughs> novel. Right, right. Um, well, at this point, John just says he has to be going and he leaves. There's a lot of coming in and out of doors and a lot of like interruptions that drive the action of this story. And it's it's crazy. You'll hear a lot more of it in the recap. Before John can return back to his duties, uh, he is stopped by a child in the street. Another interruption by a stranger. The child asks John to wait because he knows a man who's can who will pay the child if the child brings... The man back to John. John goes and gets uh, a cup of coffee in a nearby sandwich shop and waits. The child returns uh, with JFET. JFET pays the child four bits. And Glenn, I think this is another callback to your Edwardian lingo, or at least British slang that we had picked up in this story so far. Yeah, maybe it really is just a feature of this society. Maybe they are just using these Edwardian terms again. Yeah, who knows? (laughs) But this one was super explicit to me. Um, Japheth and John decide to go get a drink. John asks Japheth while they're at the bar if he's received the letters he sent and how Anna's doing. And Japheth says that he never got a letter from John. John hurries Japheth to finish his drink because he wants to go see Anna. But Japheth then says that Anna and he had gotten busted up a while back in White City, and Anna's just not with him anymore. She's with the militia in Pennsylvania, he says. J-Fit then tells John that after John's trial and Japheth's resignation from the White City militia, he drifted east and he got to New York just ahead of John, and he's been there for about two weeks. J-Fit was able to join a militia in New York and is making some money doing that, though he's also on welfare. And John, glad to see that JFIT is doing okay, excuses himself, says, Why don't we meet tomorrow? And they part ways. Well, John Kessel is
0: out wandering around New York City. He encounters a propaganda poster about. How the Chinese and the Martians are in an alliance together, and that they are the enemy of the United States and this propaganda poster really dehumanizes each of these groups of people the The, the Chinese are depicted as bloated with fat uh, there 's an expression of fiendish cruelty, and then there 's a knife dripping with blood. The The Martian is actually depicted as an insect man with bulging eyes and a bulging cranium and a tiny sucking mouth and this is I think this is pretty classic right This is what you do uh when you're attempting to other your opponent to make them seem less than human, so that it is okay to hate
1: them yeah, not just hate them. I think we'll see probably okay to kill them as well, and one thing that is interesting in this um, description of the propaganda is I believe Wolf describes the Martian as having a, a similar jawline to the Martian that showed up to like 20 groups of people or, th- or to the group of people during the trial. And they're taking an image that is probably in a lot of people's memories and trying to take over the representation of that image. So then even when they see it again, they'll associate that Martian with the negative propaganda rather than the thing they witnessed the first time. And it's, it's brilliant. One thing Wolf really understands, and I've, I've noticed this a lot, is how propaganda functions.
0: Yeah, it was a really neat detail. And you are right. You've been pointing out really since we started this project, Brandon, you've been pointing out to me all of the cases in which Wolf is using or commenting on propaganda, which are largely things I would miss. So you, you've really opened my eyes to this. And he's a master of it.
1: He really is. After John finishes his day of work, he heads back to pressed headquarters. It's the early evening, and he immediately goes up to meet his boss, Colby. Colby asks if John got the message he left for him because Colby's expecting him, but John was already planning to meet Colby because he wanted to talk to him about Charlie's case. John wants to confirm his suspicion that Colby called Charlie's boss to get him fired. Colby doesn't like getting people off welfare rolls because that's how he loses money. Colby basically asks John what he's going to do about it. John says that he's going to resign from the pressed program. John says something I really appreciate here, and I think it's something that is very fitting, especially given the conversation we had about ethics last week. And I think the decision we landed on about the choices you make have to do with the consequences you're willing to accept. John says this, I think it is better for me to go to prison than to pretend to help my clients with one hand while I help pull them down with the other. In the long run, for the sake of my soul or character or whatever you want to call it, I think that's shrewd. Yes. But I didn't think you would agree. I think we can we can take this as being something of the
0: authorial voice here. That this is Wolf's view, Wolf's very skeptical view of of social welfare programs. Uh, his reading of them is that while ostensibly they might be designed to, to 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 offer assistance to poor people, what they really do is create ties of dependency uh, with with the government, and of course once that tie is made, the institution is is not going to have any vested interest in severing those ties, that welfare is not a means to an end, but perhaps as an end in itself. I think that's the conservative objection to welfare programs.
1: I think you're right. And as you brought up kind of the historian Frank Colby, Wolf here is perhaps agreeing that an honorable man would never get into government work. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Colby has something up his sleeve, though, with this response from John. Uh, He's been given an order to remand John because Nani, the other boy at the trees farm, has implicated John in the truck explosion from chapter one. There will be new charges against John. So, John's just at a checkmate here. He leaves the office, he goes back to his room, and he eventually falls asleep. Before we get out of this scene, Brandon,
0: there's one more thing that I wanted to bring up about it. Uh, Colby and Castle disagree about the nature of drug use. Colby thinks that once a person uses drug, that's it. That person is more or less an animal and is done for. Will never be able to be fully human, fully independent. Uh, again, never be able to be a productive member of society. But Castle believes that there are social factors that contribute to substance abuse. And in particular, right, he points to the fact that he can't hold a job, and that if he could actually get a job and keep it, that he would have dignity and would have a, a purpose and would have a reason not to use drugs to to find to, to have an optimistic view of the world.
1: Right. And also, he tells Charlie to his face that he thinks his drug use is a personality problem and not like uh not like an addiction and i think that uh yeah john's defense is like well it's not actually addictive this drug and colby's defense is like well it's habit it's habit forming and i'm like i hear this you hear this in the like weed debate today all the time like these arguments are old and they're ingrained deep within our culture, and they often exist apart from any real practical experience or research.
0: I think we can can combine Castle's clear uh, disgust with the welfare system, and in particular the welfare state, with this question of whether or not there are external factors that lead a person to to use drugs, or if it's just that someone is intrinsically immoral or spiritually weak. I think if we combine those factors together, that what we see Wolf pointing to here is that, that in his worldview, people need a sense of purpose. They need a place and a function in society in order to be fully human, to be real, fully functional people.
1: Right, and I don't think that's too controversial a claim for whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. It's the extent to which these federal programs create dependency on the government which leads into this vicious cycle of vice rather than allowing a smaller government which would ostensibly allow for more businesses, more works to th- more work to thrive, better work conditions that would create a cycle of virtue? And I think that's really the question at play in this novel. Yeah. And these are, these are important questions.
0: They were vital in the 60s, and I think they're vital to us now as well.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, not to go too far afield, but something that takes up a lot of my energy in, in my thought life, which is very slim <laughs> these days, is uh, considering a theory of leisure. As more and more work becomes automated, we have to begin to thinking about how we educate our citizens, our friends and our family, though educate's a terrible word to use when when referring to them, about how to rest. Because if there's not work and people have no theory of rest uh, or of leisure or of creating on their own terms, uh, we're going to have a very difficult transition into that world. It's true that John Castle here and probably Gene
0: Wolfe as well assume automatically that the thing that gives a person an identity in the community and also a purpose in the community is work, is labor, not something else, not uh, enroll in a course, not join a book club, not even participate in a church. It's job. It's labor. This is a particularly American point of view, although it it is it has spread around the world, but this is not the worldview that most human cultures, most human societies have had about what gives a person his or her chief identity
1: yeah it 's definitely something that I enjoy engaging with and thinking about and all right well let's let 's get on with our
0: narrative of John Castle here They think there 's some exciting stuff about back to, to
1: John Castle. He has fallen asleep, which is always exciting when that happens in a book um, <laughs> <laughs> but he his his sleep brings with it dreams, and these dreams are about hyenas that are working up the courage to attack him. John is trying to fight back against these hyenas, but he 's attacked before he can do anything. His dreams struggle mirrors his reality here, not just maybe in the overall structure of the novel with John's struggle with authority, which is repeated over and over and over again in the patterns, but specifically, a guard is trying to wake him up, and John is fighting against him. The guard tells John to get dressed, and so he does, and the guards take John back to Charlie's building, where Charlie is on the roof with his wife, and Charlie is threatening to throw himself and his wife off the building if John Castle doesn't come, so the peace guards do take John to the building, but they don't give John a fist fink. Yeah, so John Castle's going to get away somehow. Right? That's the implication here. That's the promise of the, the story at this point. John gets to the building and he goes to the roof and he is trying to talk Charlie down. All Charlie wants to do is throw himself, Mona, and John off the roof. Mona is confident that the King, with a capital K, will come and save them all. This is hunter rhetoric, says Charlie. All John is trying to do is stall until the drugs Charlie has taken leave his system. Charlie wants to kill the three of them because Mona and John are the only people that Charlie knows who are only 99% rotten instead of the whole 100%. A crowd has gathered below, and a new sound tears through the clamor they produce. Mona says that the king has arrived. It's enough to distract Charlie, and John takes this opportunity to lunge. Mona is released, but Charlie and John go over the edge. Through some insane plot mechanics, they both fall off the building, and John is injured, but he has not died from the fall. Charlie has been thrown from the building, and he does die. John doesn't know where Charlie has fallen, so he gets up to look for him, and he sees a creature, a huge four-legged shape of dingy yellow, looking at him with confident amber eyes that held all the dignity and unthinking ferocity that belonged to the beasts. The creature roars, shaking the concrete canyons of the streets. And this is the end of chapter five.
0: That was a crazy chapter, but it is about to get even crazier. So let's get into
1: chapter six. Yeah, we're going to go deeper down the rabbit hole, I think, here is the only appropriate way to describe uh, what I have not yet been able to figure out what Wolf is doing with this narrative. Chapter six is called President Charles H. Huggins. And if you thought we hadn't had enough plot elements yet in this novel, boy, were you wrong. (laughs) Chapter six opens with Emile Lothrop, our only Martian person that we've met yet, on his spaceship drinking good coffee. This is, I don't know, just funny because earlier we got a description of like bad tepid Cop, coffee. So I don't I don't know what's going on here. I don't know if you remember this, Brandon, because
0: it's been several months. But when we covered Trip Trap, which was the first wolf story that we did for the podcast, Coffee on a Spaceship features in the opening of that story as well. And you commented that if you are drinking coffee on a spaceship, your society has to have solved the resource problem. And we were also making a lot of jokes about having earl grey tea on the enterprise that's right, that's right. yeah and, and so i think it's interesting here that i do think wolf is doing exactly that with the coffee he's showing us that people in the united states can't have good coffee but the martians can even though like they can't breathe their own atmosphere and they're in space because their society their institutions have solved the resource problem, but the institutions back in the United States are contrib- are making a resource
1: problem. I'm really glad you brought that up because I had forgotten, but that is exactly what's going on here. Uh, it's great shorthand for we've solved it all. Emil is reviewing uh, what he calls these random coincident occurrences. And basically, these are points of data that have been processed by a computer that um, the intersection of which may reveal valuable intelligence. This is uh, what we call today big data. There wasn't a term for it back then. The data comes from channels of communication that the Martians have infiltrated uh, from the pro tem government. Emil is told from his computer that there are over 300 of these coincidences. Only one features John Castle. Stennis, we learn, has said that he believes John is a leader of Ares, and Anna Trees has mentioned that John was her former leader in a cell of Ares, now destroyed. But from Emil's perspective, there's no value in any of this data, and so he just says no action. And that's what we get of Emil. Before we leave the spaceship
0: and head back to Earth, I want to talk about a line here that's really just kind of a throwaway line, but I want to engage in one of the activities I really love about revisiting these older wolf pieces is to look at the history of the future, just to say how people in the past thought today was going to be like. And we get a mention here of the leader of communist China as using the title Regent of Mao. Mao, of course, is Mao Zedong, who was one of the founders of the Communist Party in China in the 1920s, and then also was the first head of the People's Republic of China, that is communist China, following the Second World War. Now, he doesn't die until 1976. So Wolf here is envisioning what will come of China when Mao eventually dies and someone has to succeed him. And and this idea suggests, this regent of Mao title suggests that even though Mao is dead, he still officially rules and the current head of China is merely his regent. This has to have some kind of religious overtone to it that I think Wolf is pointing he- to here and saying that the communist China is a cult of personality around Mao, and that, and of course, that that's bad, right?
1: Right. He also points out here, I guess, as I was listening to your, as I was listening to that uh, great insight, I also recall that like every great ideology has a paradox at its core, and this would be that that this is a communist party who has no religion, however, somehow believes in. An afterlife and a spiritual ruler. So it's just really interesting paradox that allows the ideology to remain fertile in the minds of its people. Yeah, and it's just a really cool
0: title as well. Sadly, the head of the PRC today uses the very dull, very boring title of General Secretary of the Communist Party. I, I actually thought about emailing him this week to suggest that he changed the title to Regent of Mao.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you, Glenn, if you wanted to perhaps play keys in my jazz fusion band, Regent of Mao. <laughs> <laughs> We've got some good bands going on in this book so far. Yeah. Well, the perspective then in this story shifts abruptly, and this is a long section about Nani, uh, the the boy who lived with the trees. His name is Norman Cooper, um, and he's had a rough time of it. He is at a prison. He's been beaten badly. He's been tortured uh, mercilessly, and he is psychologically broken down. And it's implied that this is how the authorities coerced a confession from him, to name John Castle in the attack on the education team um, that came to the White City. And the prison guard, who is just a rough, cruel person, tells Nani uh, not to worry because the prison is full of prisoners just like him.
0: Yeah, this is a pretty grotesque, pretty gruesome scene. Uh, We're just seeing here that this state, the, the pro tem government of the United States, is, is perfectly willing to torture people.
1: Yeah, it's really dark stuff. And it, it goes against everything we've learned about what the captain upholds about the right to rule for the pro tem government. And it's just fascinating that we see now the real underbelly, the real filth of this rule come out in this section and, and that the captain is just way off base and has been about the good that he's trying to do. Our narrative returns to John Castle. He is healing. His broken arm is encased in plaster. And he's been doing some work for the hunters. The leader of the hunters is a woman named Tia Marie. She comes into John's room and John looks at her and he wonders at the mixture of races that could have given so dark a complexion with clear blue eyes combined with an ageless hawk face and the stature of a giantess. I don't know how you feel about this description. It's interesting to me. I don't know what an angel's hawk face looks like, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, and I would like to see, I suppose, an illustration of Tia Marie. I'd like to see what, how, an, what, how an artist interprets these words.
1: Yeah, I guess something like there's some voodoo priestess imagery going on here, but it, it just doesn't quite connect, um, especially with the actions she engages in later on during the ritual that we'll get to in just a little bit. Tia Marie sits down with John, and they talk. She tells John that the next time she comes into the room, and it looks like she's going to stay more for than just a brief time, he is to ask her to be seated. And this is because the hunters are a family, and courtesies prevent family quarrels. I love this line. I think it's fundamentally true. I think engaging in the mask of civility and niceties does actually protect us from a lot of needless conflict.
0: John's response to this is quite interesting, though, because he is pointing out that these civilities are
1: an illusion. Right. And that's maybe the whole point of the hunter religion, as, as we'll find out when we learn more about it. But illusions are not by no means bad things. And I think that might feature into some of our discussion as well. Yeah, because it does seem here that John thinks they're bad things. That's right, he does. His attitude is that they are bad. Their conversation continues, and Timory asks John if he has read the books she has lent them, and we'll learn more about these books also in just a moment. John, though, at first wonders if her real name is Maria de Laracon, because that name was found written inside the fly cover of one of the books. And here we learn a little bit about what has elapsed between the lion showing up at the crazy scene at the end of the last chapter. And now Japheth has brought John to the hunters. He was in very bad shape. And John, I guess, being grateful for all that they've done for him is trying to learn the ways of the hunters. Tia Marie says to John that trying is nothing. To succeed is all. And here I'm convinced that George Lucas has read Gene Wolfe and Yoda on Tia Marie. Yeah, absolutely.
0: We've made this joke before. I don't even remember which stories it is, but we've done it at least twice. And here it is again, George Lucas clearly just ripping off Gene Wolfe. I think there's an article to be written here about this, a shocking expose. (laughs) Uh,
1: Then we might actually get Wolfe some film rights. Maybe we could contact TMZ and then they'd be interested in in doing the work for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. We we we'll start a petition. Yeah. Well, Tia Marie goes on to ask, like, how much more proof could John want that her re- organization is right, that her beliefs are right? Because the king, who is Tia Marie's lion, rescued Mona, who called out to it. And this, in turn, released John from all of his worries about his entrapment and his imprisonment with the police guard. John thinks he has an answer for everything. The lion is just a well-trained animal who stalks the night of the city anyway. And Tia Marie is just says, well, what, what, whatever. Like I, I don't know what more you want. We'll continue to help you. And the reason why her attitude is this way is, I think, is going to come up in one of the books that she has lent John to read. But first, she asks John if the drum is ready. And John says, it will be by tonight. And she says she's going to be very pleased if it is ready, because the President of the Republic, Charles H. Huggins, will be joining them. Do you think he goes by Chuck? Chuck Huggins?
0: I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners can write in and uh, let us know uh, which which of us they agree with.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Maybe Chuck Huggins could play sax in our, in our jazz fusion band. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well... Uh, John says a little bit about Charles H. Huggins to Tia Marie, though it's also meant to be exposition for us. We learned that Charles H. Huggins, at least in John's words, is, is, is just the constitutional president. It's just an appeasement, in a sense, for the people, this position of constitutional President, Right. Well, the real power lies in the hands of the president
0: pro tem. And this is a direct parallel with, with the way communist governments are run, both in the Soviet Union and in the People's Republic of China, where there is, in fact, a nominal head of state and head of government. But that person does not really have any actual power, that it's the head of the political party, the head of the communist party who holds the power. So Stalin, for example, Mao Zedong, who we just talked about, were never officially the heads of state of either of those countries. They were the head of the political party, but de facto then, if not de jure, they were running things. And that's the same situation we have here.
1: Right. But Tia Marie thinks differently. She says that John is as foolish about believing this, as you just described, Glenn, as he is about hunting. John thinks that the Boyd presidency is the only reality. And Tia Marie goes on to say that John sees only the substance of things and never the shadows. But shadows, says Tia Marie, are as real as substances, only more difficult to see. This is a major theme of Wolf's work, especially as he engages in the political rule and governance of his societies. This is a major feature in the book of The New Sun. Yeah, and we'll be talking about this in our discussion today. John says that any physicist would agree with the statement that uh, shadows are real, uh, but the elected constitutional presidency is a farce. But no matter John's feelings, T. Marie commands John to meet and escort President Huggins to the chamber later that evening. She thinks that John would be able to represent the Hunters and her idea of the Hunters perhaps better than anyone else she currently has in her organization. Plus, he owes her one. And with that, she leaves. After she leaves, John considers the beliefs of the Hunters and Tia Marie. She believes that civilization is an illusion cast by man upon mankind the hunters in reality are savages living amid canyons of stone. The books she had lent John help to explain her beliefs. And these books are about astrology and animism, spiritualism, and the seven works. And I took the seven works to refer to uh, the seven works of mercy, which take both corporal and uh, spiritual forms.
0: Yeah, this uh, this paragraph is what we're going to discuss today. We're going to unpack this paragraph. I think that you're probably right there, but there are some other possibilities.
1: I'm excited to hear what they are. As John is thinking about all of these things, he leaves his room and we learn that he is still in pain. And what he wants to do is check on the preparation for the evening's events and get a little more information about when and what he's supposed to do in escorting this president. President Huggins arrives and John escorts him and his guard to the chamber where they're performing this ritual. The president remarks upon the wonderful things the hunter do in their rituals, which include talking to the dead. And I mean wonder, wonderful in the sense that like, people are filled with wonder by these things, not like they're great. <laughs> yes, right. The, the actual literal meaning of the word
0: wonderful, not just as a synonym for great for right, good or for just really- okay <laughs> which, is just,
1: which is usually how it's <laughs> right <laughs> john responds with some hunter belief and he says that the dead are not dead because what once had existence always has existence john wars huggins that the council has already begun this ritual and because it is timed with the stars they couldn't have delayed it even for such an illustrious man as he uh, Huggins must remember, when he enters the chamber, that the past lies, the great trees of the forest that were once there and are there still, are surrounding him on all sides. John notices also that one of Huggins' guards is an Oriental woman.
0: Yeah, we're, uh, we're seeing here our, our two storylines about to meet.
1: Right. Right. They enter the room, and Tia Marie is on stage performing a ritual involving a rattle made from a human skull and a thigh bone. She's dancing behind a fire. The president asks what she's doing, and John says he honestly doesn't know. And the president is shocked then to see that all of the people in the room have spears. But spears, John says, are just ritual implements to the hunters. Tia Marie and the crowd engage in a bit of call and response. And what this call and response communicates is that she sees someone who isn't there, and they're coming closer and closer and closer to her. And she puts a tom-tom over the fire, and it plays by itself. And the president is just like not impressed. And he's like, that's a recording. And it's kind of a funny moment. Yeah, he does not like going to magic shows. No, he does not. Um, But Tia Marie continues her ritual, and she's calling to the trees and the animals that were gone but are now returning. And the animals are like the bear and the hyena. And eventually, all of this leads up to Tia Marie saying, The king is here! And the sound of a roaring lion shatters the air, and the president is once again furious, that it 's just a, a recording, and that this is really the subject of the ritual he's just he 's just not glad to be there at this point, however, a lion does appear on stage, and this causes one of the bodyguards to level their machine gun at it. John slaps the muzzle of the machine gun down. I love the word the use of the word muzzle there by the way it 's great with all this animalistic imagery and the lion paces on stage as John and the people of the crowd take burning pieces of wood from the fire for protection. Um, the, the people call out for the lion to bring them meat. And the lion leaps through the fire. He disappears into thin air and a bull appears in the lion's place. Tia Marie spears the bull first and the other cultists take up their spears and do the same. The bull dies, and the crowd is pressing in on everyone, and the president is trying to leave the room. And one of the militia members presses against John's broken arm, and he tries to to raise his arm out of the way. And in doing so, he knocks off the cap of this militia guard, and her hair tumbles loose, and John recognizes Anna Trees. Yeah, this is a nice meet-cute for this couple, I think. Uh, Yeah, I think
0: so. I really loved this scene. The imagery that Wolf uses and the visual language that he employs to depict this scene for us is uh, is some really breathtaking prose. I felt like I was in the room as this ritual was taking place. Wolf hits all of the senses, and he also captures, I think quite beautifully, the emotional and also intellectual responses of both John Castle and President Huggins. It's a really well-written scene.
1: I really loved it as well. And I love especially the fact that Huggins' skepticism and knowledge doesn't save him from the real threats that are represented in this ritual. And I just think that's what rituals are for, ultimately. You can um, uh, always dismiss a ritual, but what they represent is always more important than than kind of the the substance of them. Yeah, they're shadows. Exactly. And we have here, I mean, just... I, I agree with you, Glenn, this is wonderful stuff. Hours after this ritual takes place, Anna meets John in his room. She's been brought from where she is staying by Sarah, and Sarah and Jafet, who has also come, leave Anna and John alone for a while. This gives Anna and John an opportunity to catch up. Anna, too, was wanted for questioning, we found out. But her superior, the Indian of her uh, detail, Bob Running Horse, ignored the request, primarily because he and Sarah have something going on, and Sarah and Anna are friends, and like he just didn't want to get in the middle of that. So that's that. Anna's doing all right. (laughs) Um, She also tells John that she is in Aries, and she shows him her communicator. She tells John that he can join if he wants. She knows a place in New York where the Martians will pick him up and get him ready for his part in the mission. Anna's mission is to win Huggins over to Ares because the Martians want to restore the Constitution and Huggins is the constitutional president. Anna tells John how he can get picked up by the Martians not just the where, but the how, and they kiss. And Sarah and Jafet come back, and before they all leave, John alone. Sarah has a question for John. She wants to know how all the tricks on stage were performed. And John takes—I don't know—a third of the novel, I suppose, explaining about recordings and sound vibrations and trapdoors. And she's amazed that John has these skills. But more importantly, she understands that it's through these practical effects that Tia Marie is able to convince people that she has supernatural power. And the chapter just kind of ends here with John explaining how the lion leapt through the trap door on stage just as the bull appeared, and that it was the audience's expectation of where the lion would go that allowed the trick to work. By the time the lion was gone, the trapdoor was closed. And this is the end of chapter six. And I'm, I'm excited to see if there's some structural theory at play here in where this will come back, if at all, if there's something we can tie to the end of another chapter that's going to help us understand the meaning of this chapter's ending. But it really just fizzles.
0: It does, but it's unclear where the, where the book is going to go from here. And I think something we've seen as kind of a pattern here is that these chapter breaks are often huge breaks in time, days, sometimes weeks. So it is conceivable that we might get open up chapter seven and still be here in Tia Marie's cult compound. But we might also be six weeks in the future and something entirely different is going on. So I don't know if we'll really get much resolution from this scene. Nor I, nor I. (laughs) So before we move into our discussion, there's just a couple of things that I want to point out here uh, from that last scene. Uh, first is that this communicator that they're using to talk to the Martians is the exact plot of Star Trek. It's the communicator from Star <laughs> Trek, described exactly as right, a communicator right, from right. Star Trek, which I think is a great touch. But I also want to point out that Ares got Sarah. Put onto the president's bodyguard, and therefore Aries must have people in high places somehow. I mean, they might only be high within the militia, but they could be high within the civilian branch of the government as well. So it's it's pointing to a much bigger world than the world that we are seeing through the eyes of our protagonist.
1: Yeah, and one thing we also see here is that there are many people who believe that John is a member of Aries, even though he's not. And I think that's going to be part of what. Leads John to actually join Ares and be perhaps become its ruler I'm seeing a lot of maybe not structural similarities but craft similarities in the way Wolf is telling the story perhaps of someone's rise to fame or notoriety within an organization as we get later on uh, when he's perfected it in the book of the new Sun that what we're getting is all this this tale of a man in the form of a picaresque who perhaps will become the leader of this movement, perhaps become the next president. I don't know what's going to happen. But what we're getting is just all these odd contingent events that happen that place him in the right place at the right time. And I think uh, before I wouldn't have really thought of Wolf so much as a picaresque writer, but I think that's where he thrives, yeah, and there's this is a, a pattern
0: that we're going to see time and time again, really, in in Wolf's stories. Uh, I think you're you're certainly right to to point to the parallels with the Book of the New Sun here, and I think it will be really profitable for us to have Operation Ares under our belts when we eventually cover that for the podcast. But that's uh, that's getting ahead of ourselves by several years at this point. So I think that's going to do it for this episode. But we'll be back in a few days with our discussion of these chapters. Until then, I'm Glenn McDorman
1: And I'm Brandon Buddha. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com.
0: Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and uh, let us know if you think that these Russian soldiers are
1: lobotomized humans or actual robots. Yeah, I'd love to hear what our listeners have to say about that. Until next time, though, we greet you and we say farewell.